So we've been going through um, the book of Luke um, this, this year, and we're, we've moved to Luke uh, 6, verse 20 to 38, and you can see that in our pamphlets. Um, so I'm going to read that to us now, and then I'm going to pray for Nigel before he comes and um, shares his, the message from God's word for us. So starting from verse 20. Looking at his disciples, he said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, because great is your reward in heaven. For that is how their ancestors treated the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your comfort. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you will go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when everyone speaks well of you, for that is how their ancestors treated the false prophets. But to you who are listening, I say, Love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who, le- who ill-treat you. If someone slaps you on one cheek, turn to them, the, also, the other also. If someone takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt from them. Give to everyone who asks you, and if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have them to do to you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners expecting to be repaid in full. But love your enemies, do good to them and lend to them without expecting to get anything back then your reward will be great and you will be children of the Most High because he is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. Do not judge and you will not be judged. Do not condemn and you will not be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. Give and it will be given to you. A good measure pressed down, shaken together and running over will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Well, good morning. It's good to see you. Um, and just to reiterate, as James said, we claim, we claim uh, Joel and Margot's wedding for ourselves. It's not about them, it's about us and Epsom. It's our first wedding. So if you can make it there, please come and join them. Uh, it's two o'clock at the King's Centre this Friday coming. If you've got to work, um, then I'm sorry about that. But I've got the privilege of working and I'm going to be there. And I get to say congratulations to Mr. and Mrs. Evans first. So I look forward to that. There's um, a film that I was remembering just this week. There's a lot of films. I was, I was thinking, I'm using a lot of films recently, so I'll read some books in the year ahead, I promise. But there's a film that I was chatting about with Chris Birch just this week. It's a film called Up in the Air with uh, George Clooney. He stars as a corporate executive called Ryan Bingham. Ryan Bingham has zero emotional intelligence. I mean nothing. And because of this, he is employed by corporate America to fly across, up and down, east and west, around the country, firing people. 
He literally jets in as he lives out of a suitcase. He fires a boatload of people, gives them a package, says deal with it, and then he moves on. There's one part in the film that is particularly moving, interesting, and fascinating all at the same time. Ryan Bingham is in a hotel suite giving a motivational speech to aspiring business people. And he asks them this question. He says, how heavy does your life weigh? How heavy does your life weigh? Imagine you're carrying a backpack. And in that backpack, there's everything you own. There's all your knickknacks. They're in the backpack. There's your widescreen TV. That's in the backpack. There's your house, if that's possible. That's in the backpack. Your car, your loans. Everything is in the backpack. Now, how heavy does that feel? Now, I want you to imagine something, says George Clooney. We're going to take that backpack off and we're going to set it on fire. How do you feel now? And then he says, and this is where it gets very interesting. Now I want you to imagine you're carrying another backpack. And this one is even heavier than the first one. Because in this one are all your relationships. Don't worry, I'm not going to set fire to it, he says. But imagine starting from those who don't know you so well to those who know you really well. You've got the people, the people who you work alongside. They're in your backpack. And then you're getting a little bit closer. Those people whom you trust, they're in your backpack. Your children, your spouse, those nearest and dearest to you, they're all in the backpack. And you can feel the straps getting heavier and tighter and cutting into your shoulders. He says, make no mistake, your relationships are the heaviest components in your life. Don't you feel the straps cutting into your shoulders? This is to encourage you, Joel and Margot, by the way. All those negotiations, um, all those arguments, all those secrets, all those compromises, you don't need to carry all that weight. Why don't you set that bag down? And then he says, some animals were meant to carry each other. We are not those animals. The slower we move, the faster we die. We are not swans. We are sharks. Here's Bingham. He's living his streamlined life, literally out of one suitcase. There's a whole wonderful scene where he describes those to avoid uh, getting behind as you check out, those who will get you through quicker. But he's living this emotionally shallow, emotionally poor life as he jets across America. And it's self-centered, it's self-consumed, and he just describes in this speech this really lonely manifesto for life that, that changes throughout the film, but you can rent it off Amazon and uh, see what happens. It's his manifesto for life. I want to be a shark. I want to be streamlined. I want to consume people, because actually I want to get up the corporate ladder. That's the uh, manifesto of Ryan Bingham. And over the next three or four weeks, we're going to be in the Sermon on the Plain or the Sermon on the Mount, as Matthew calls it. Luke calls it the Sermon on the Plain. And and here you've got Jesus' manifesto. How to uh, react to different issues such as money, sex, people, power. And Jesus says, 
This is what concrete Christianity looks like. I mean, if you look down at the Beatitudes, verse 20 of chapter 6 and following, it can be a bit up in the air, pun intended. It can be a little bit remote, a little bit aspirational. But as soon as we start getting to verse 27 and following, then it gets very, very concrete. This is a very famous passage of the Bible. If you're not familiar with it, why not please have a look at it this afternoon? But let me, just to clear our throat, so to speak, before we look at it, here are two dangers that we are in danger of falling into as we look at the Sermon on the Plain or the Sermon on the Mount. Here's the first one. The first one is that you can read the whole of the Sermon on the Mount as a Western Christian individualistically. You can read this and think, this is about how I spend my money, this is about my relationships, this is about the people that I rub shoulders with. It can be completely focused on yourself. But Jesus has called to himself a people. Verse 20, his disciples are gathered around him. This is a community thing, not an individualistic thing. So just bear that in mind. The second danger that we fall into is that we can read it moralistically. What do I mean? If we don't know the rest of the story, we can read these commands and think, if only I keep these commands, if only I have a perfect record, then I can win God's favour, then he will be a Uh, Please with me, I can win his approval, I can gain access into heaven. This is what I need to do. It's a tick chart, like the ones you used to get at school. It's a star chart where you can see your performance and how well you're doing or how badly you're doing. We can read it moralistically. But notice, this is not why the Sermon on the Mount is here. This is a demonstration of the new life that has begun by God's grace in the heart of his followers. This is not what you do to gain his approval. You've already received it. These are Jesus' followers, his disciples. This is a new community, a new kingdom where grace rules. And because of that, there's an outflow, a demonstration of a gospel-centered community. That's why the Sermon on the Mount is here. No religion can create these attitudes. If it's about performance, we'll fail. But this is a community where grace rules, and this is how it's seen. First topic, in our relationships, beginning at verse 27. There's a call, there's a challenge, and then there's the power. But first of all, the call. You might see verse 27 and think this is all about relationships. I think we can all see that. And when you hear relationships, especially on Valentine's Day, you just think a bit dewy-eyed, a bit doughy-eyed, looking at Peter and Gita, a little bit kind of romances in the air. Uh, You might think about rose petals. But actually, this is not talking about romance. It's not talking about marriage. It's not talking about uh, romance uh, and relationships in the way the world defines, not with our friends. Look at what it's saying, verse 27 and following. The main purpose here, Jesus is talking about, relationships with outsiders. Those people outside of our friendship group. Those people who are different from us. Those people who are hard to love. Those people that society pushes to one side. These are the people that Jesus wants us to think about how we relate to them. It begins with the call, verse 27. Here is two groups of people. The first group is in verses 27 to 28. This is the behavior that Jesus expects from anyone who owns his name as Christian. Verse 27. These are people who oppose you. These are people who oppose you. People who are against you. People that have wronged you. And what does Jesus say? Love your enemies. Those who hate you. Those who curse you. I want you to love those people. 
hurt and uh, cursing, people who who mean to do you harm, those people who mean to do you ill, those people who uh, have a motive to, to tread you down, to oppress you. Those people who mistreat you, Jesus says, verse is 27 and 28. Those people who strike you on the cheek. Now that does not mean they want to cause a fight with you. For many years I thought this is about boxing and punching. It's not. It's actually more to do with an insult. Someone who would slap you on the cheek and then you, to insult you and then they'll turn the other one and let them insult you again. Those people who want to do you harm those people who are against you, those people who are your enemies, Jesus says, one of the signs that you are my people, that grace is pervading in this community in which you live and in your heart, is that you love those people who want to do you harm. and Not just love them, what else does it say? Verses 27 and 28, I want you to care for them. I want you to pray for them. I want you as much as possible, this is interesting, to do good to them who hate you. That's the first group, those people who oppose you. Second group is verse 29. Here's the call again. The second group are people who are less fortunate than you are. Now we can read this wrongly. Let's read it as we normally do. If someone takes your cloak, do not stop him from taking your tunic. We can start there and we think, aha, I know what this is about, what Jesus is saying. As he goes on, verses uh, 29 into 30, this is about robbery. You know, if someone breaks into your house, they want your cloak or your tunic, then you just say, well, actually, let me uh, help you fill up the back of your van or your car because you can have all my wardrobe as well. And whilst you're at it, here's my pin number. Go and have a holiday. Is that really what Jesus is saying? Is it really about robbery? I don't think it is. Look at verse 30. Give to everyone who asks you, and if anyone takes that which belongs to you, do not demand it back. This is the new section. It doesn't go with what has happened before. It's a new sentence. Give to everyone who asks you, and if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. Do you see that? Do to others as you would have them do to you. If Jesus is talking about robbery, that wouldn't fit. But logically, what happens is, this one sentence follows the other. It doesn't go with what's come before. It's not someone who comes and says, I want your car. Oh, you can have my house as well. It's about radical generosity in a community where grace pervades everything. It's about seeing someone in need and giving to them abundantly. There are uh, synonyms here, verses 29 and 30. Let me prove it to you. Take Verses 29. Verse 30, ask. It's the same thing. Just like hate and curse and uh, mistreat, they're saying the same thing as well. So when someone comes to you who is less fortunate than you and they are in need, Jesus is saying, out of the abundance that you have, give generously to them. Not only have you got to love your enemies, those who want to oppress you, those who are less fortunate than you, you've got to love them as well. You've got to give generously to them. There's a man called Earl Ellis who wrote a commentary on Luke. It's very helpful on this section. He says, here Jesus is not talking about giving a, a bumper kind of gift at the end of your payday. It's not about giving one off a year, perhaps at Christmas, to crisis or a charity like that. This is more talking about a pervading spirit in your life. So when you go to the Ashley Centre, as someone did yesterday, uh, it's not just giving a pound for a copy of The Big Issue, and that's your bit done for those who are not as well off as you for the week. 
This is about you buying a copy of the big issue, which is a good thing to do, but then as you go in to do your shopping for whatever you need, every decision you made, every decision you make, everything you purchase is within the framework of generosity. I want to care for those who are less fortunate than me. Do you see? It's not a one-off. It's not a pound at the door. It's an attitude of mind and of spirit and of heart where you want to be generous to those who oppose you and generous to those who are less fortunate than you. It's a whole life thing, says Earl Ellis. It pervades. It's an atmosphere of your heart. It's a disposition and a direction towards those who oppose you and those who are less fortunate than you. That's the call that Jesus wants to give to us from verses 27 down to 31. But then there's a challenge, secondarily. There's a challenge. Now, I thought about sharing this, but I will, which may be a mistake. Have you ever had that experience of going into a room, perhaps at a party, or going into a room perhaps uh, in a business setting, and not knowing anybody who's there? If you're like me, you do the following steps. You scan the room for someone you know. Point number one. Point number two. You avoid eye contact as much as you can with any strangers. So you shut your eyes, but you're trying to scan the room at the same time. Thirdly, I always look for people who look like me or people who dress the same or people who I think will have a, a similar outlook to life than me even. You try and look for people who can I fit with. Fourthly, you avoid people who look like they'd be too hard work to talk to. Is that how you do it? Or is it just me? If you don't do that, you certainly do this. When you go out for a meal and it's somewhere you've not been to before, you scan the menu that's in the window and then you go in and then you get a seat and immediately you're scanning the room to think, is this going to be a good place to sit? Then you see a hen party with 40 people on one side of the restaurant and you think, now it's time to leave before we order the food. But you look at the other people in the room or the restaurant, you look at other people in the party, and you think, can I fit here? Are these people the same as me or different from me? Is this going to be a nice evening or not? It doesn't matter about the food, it sure matters about the company. Look at what Jesus says in this challenge, verse 32. One of the signs that God's grace is at work in your life is how you deal with people who are different from you. Verse 32. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners, even sinners love those who love them. A little phrase, even sinners. What's Jesus talking about? Here's what I think Jesus is talking about. Think about this. He says, I want you at the bottom of the uh, section here, verse 35, I want you to be kind to the ungrateful, and I want you to be kind to the wicked as well. And what Jesus is saying is, everybody does this. Everybody goes into a room and looks for people who look like them, who looks for people who are different from them and steers away from those. Worldly people do this. Religious people do this. Christians should not do this. What do I mean? Worldly people, they go into a room and they think, right, is there anybody who looks like me? Is there anybody to whom I can relate? Is there anybody with the same social standing as me? Is there anybody who's wearing the same labels as me? Is there anybody from the same tribe as me? That's how worldly people operate. Religious people, they would do it like this. Religious people would say, are these my kind of people? Are they decent people? Is their language 
good? Is their doctrine right if it's in a Christian setting? Are their beliefs the same as mine? Do they hold and adhere to the same practices as I do? It's how worldly people enter a room or religious people enter a room. And Jesus is saying, Christians need to be different, completely different from both those groups of people. There has to be a third way. That's the challenge. In your relationships with outsiders, we've got to be different from the world. In our relationships to other people, we've got to be different from religious people because the gospel is not religion. So Jesus says, verses uh, 32, 33, and 34, this repeated phrase that comes up saying, what credit is it to you, my followers, if you behave just like the world? What credit is it to you if you behave just like sinners do? Did you notice that three times? If you love only those who love you, what credit is that to you? And if you only do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? What credit is that to you? Now, what does that mean? What is Jesus saying? He's not just being repetitive. He's trying to make a point. Credit to who? This is what I think it means. The word credit here that we've got three times is actually the New Testament word for grace. It's the word charis, grace. What grace is that to you? Where is grace evident in your life and in relationships with other people if you behave just like the world? What credit is that to you? When you love people just like the world does for what they can give to you, from what you can get from them, what grace is that to you? You're not loving other people as I have loved you. You're loving them not for their sake, but for yours. You're loving them for your sake, not for theirs. You're not loving at all. You're not loving the way I loved you, says Jesus. You're there as a Christian to relate in a completely different way. How? You're there to do good. You're there to lend. You're there to love. You're there to to do good and to pray for people who are different from you. Those who deliberately look uh, different from you, you've got to look for opportunities to love them, to be gracious to them. And isn't this easy in Epsom? What about doing good to those who have a different color skin from you? What about doing good to those and intentionally looking out for those who are from a different social class to you? What about loving those who are a different age to you? What about loving those who have less mobility than you? What about loving those who have less money than you? What about loving those who have more money than you? Jesus says, the hallmark from this section of my grace at work in your life is how you relate to people who are different from you. It's not about romance. Verse 35, it's about loving your enemies and doing good and lending expect nothing back. And you might think, hang on, most religions of the world, they have a similar ethic. They'll say do good to the poor. They'll say lend. They'll say uh, be kind and generous. But Jesus kind of pulls the pin out of a grace-filled hand grenade when he says, love your enemies. Don't just lend to your friends. Don't just lend money and lend your time and lend things to those to whom you know will repay you. I want you to risk. I want you to demonstrate grace to those who are different from you, even if it's costly. This quality, this attitude... This lifestyle 
will be the defining mark by which my community will be seen as it goes into the world, says Jesus. It's an attitude towards people that loves them. It's motivated by the grace that you've received, says Jesus. And so you lend and you pray and you give again and again and again. That's how you know you belong to Jesus. If your heart is being shaped and fashioned in that way. If you love people who are different from you. Now if you understand this, if you're kind of tracking with me as they say in America, you should be thinking if you've not zoned out, that's all very well but that's impossible. That's all very well but how do I do it? That's all very well but I can't do that. And if you're thinking that, that's precisely the point. Jesus has given a call to love people, to love those who are against you, to love those who are uh, less well-off than you, to love those that are different from you. And then the challenge is, well, actually, the world does that. The world loves people in their way. Religious people love people in their way. And Jesus says, I want, to love, I want you to love people who are different from you, and actually, I want you to love your enemies as well. I don't want you to uh, strike back. I don't want you to avenge or seek revenge. I want you to love people. Where is the power for you to do that? This is impossible, and it is. Unless you see the power that's in verse 35. Verse 35, here's the power to live and to love and to care in the way that Jesus wants us to. There are two things here. Jesus says, then your reward will be great, and you'll be sons of the Most High because he is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. If we get a hold of this verse, if we squeeze it for all it's worth, if we meditate on this throughout the week, here's the power to live this way, to love people who don't deserve it, who love people who won't pay you back, to care for and love and pray for your enemies. Here's the power in this verse, two things. Number one, verse 35, it tells us about the reality that if we're Christians here this morning, we've been adopted. We've been adopted. The first thing it says is your sons of the Father, verse 35, your sons of the Father. Now, first time you read this, you may read it wrongly as I did, because it looks like it says, if you love those who are different from you, if you love your enemies, then you'll become a son of God. It looks like it reads in that way. But that's not the sense of it at all, literally. Remember verse 20, Jesus speaking to his disciples, those who are following him, those who are part of this new community of grace. God is already their father. God has already chosen them. He's called them. He's adopted them. So they can already call Jesus their friend and God their father through the power of the Spirit. And so Jesus is not saying, here's a new way to live. Here's a new way to love. Here's a new way to behave. Jesus is saying, I want you to be who you are. I want you to love as a response to my grace that you've already received. This is not a new commandment. This is living out who you already are. You've already received my mercy and grace. You already have uh, the spirit in your heart drawing me to yourself and you to me. And therefore, I want you to live out the gospel in your relationships. You've been adopted into a new family. Paul says that in Galatians. In Galatians 4, Paul says God's common grace is seen throughout the world. He's created everything for his glory. And yet, he has chosen and called and adopted a people who are his by grace. 
Now, what does this mean? There's a few people here who, who have adopted, who've got experience, lots more experience of adoption than I have. But this is what it means. In the ancient Near East, in the time that this was written, adoption would have been very common, far more common than it is today. So I want you to imagine they're a very wealthy couple. They're a very wealthy couple. They're growing uh, older in age. They've got no children of themselves. It would be very common for someone who is older and wealthy to adopt somebody before they died. Someone who would receive their inheritance. Somebody who they could set their love upon. Someone who, when they died, would care for their estate. And that's the, the freight, that's the weight, that's the, the ballast, that's the significance and the foundation for the whole of the New Testament, talking about adoption. That's what we need to understand, that God has chosen us in Jesus. He's called us before the creation of the world. He's adopted us into his family. And this is what it means. Here's the cash value of that. Instantaneously, you become a Christian. You may well be penniless. The bank manager might be after you, even this week. But the moment you're adopted, you go from being poor to being abundantly rich. The moment you are adopted, God is no longer the CEO of the universe. He's no longer distant. Adoption means intimacy. If you are adopted into my family, that means you get the privilege of calling me 24-7. That means if you want a cup of water, you can come and try and wake me up. It is like waking the dead. And if you do succeed in waking me up, I will get you a glass of water. And it's exactly the same to the Christian. You go from poverty to riches in an instant. Heavenly riches beyond your wildest imagination. But it's not pie in the sky when you die. This is solid joy. It's lasting treasure. But also you have intimacy with the Father. Notice how Jesus says you'll be sons of the Most High. This is sonship. Whether you're a man or a woman here this morning, you get to know God intimately, personally. It's adoption, it's riches, it's intimacy, and it's access to God because he's your father. You're loved permanently. You are loved unconditionally. What a great day to be looking at this. You're loved comprehensively if you're a Christian in Jesus. It's adoption into the family. That's the first thing. Adoption. Secondly, it says, verse 35, he is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. It's another parallel, ungrateful and wicked. And everything has been building up to this. Jesus is saying, Christian friend here this morning, I want you to be like, I want you to be like your father. I want you to love like your father. Because your father has been gracious to his enemies. And I want you to love your enemies too. And who are God's enemies? Us. This is the one of the most, if not probably the top three, unpalatable truths, truths in the whole of the Bible. We are God's enemies. And yet God has set his love upon us. And if God has done that for us, we should be doing that to our enemies too. So a Christian is someone who understands themselves as an adopted child of God, but not just an adopted child. A Christian is someone who understands that they're actually an adopted enemy of God. That's the definition of a Christian. I'm an adopted enemy. And all of the truth of this passage flows from that reality. We're adopted enemies of God our Father. And because of that, and because of his grace, 
We can love those who are different from us. We can love those who oppress us. We can love those who have a different color skin, social class, economic status. We can love people like that because God has loved us to the same degree. We can love other people because of the cross. We can love our enemies because of the cross. Because on the cross, you see Jesus, you see him cursed. You see him cursed on the cross, and yet he's blessing those who curse him. On the cross, you see Jesus being mistreated again and again and again, and yet he's praying for his people. He's praying for enemies. And Jesus on the cross is not just saying, be like this. He's not just saying, uh, be like this because uh, I'm like this. Jesus is saying on the cross, be like this because I'm going to be like this for you. I'm going to hang on the cross for you. I'm going to uh, know enmity from my Father that you'll never know. I'm going to be maligned and beaten up by by enemies in a way that you may never know in comfortable Western Europe. But Jesus Christ looks at you and he sets his love on you. And if you're a Christian here this morning already, you've been adopted before the creation of the world. And when you see that, to the degree you see that is to the degree that you have power to love other people. Power to love other people who are broken, people who are needy, people who will malign you and tread upon you, people who will insult you. You have power to hear the call, to answer the challenge, and to know the power of the gospel. Because you can say, I was hostile to him, and yet he set his love on me. I insulted him, and yet he chose me. If I was there, I would have done exactly what those Roman soldiers did, and yet God has adopted me in Jesus. And so I can turn the other cheek. I can give generously, I can give abundantly, because my significance is not what I have. It's in who I am in Jesus. And that's changed everything. You have the uh, emotional humility because you know that you're a sinner saved by grace and you have the emotional resources to take insults and to love people. That's the truth of the gospel. You can take an insult because you can say, hey, look at what I've got in Jesus. If we're amazed, and to the degree that we're amazed by the mercy of God that we celebrate around this table in a moment, if we get that amazement at his grace, only then will we be empowered to love the way Jesus commands us and calls us to love. To love people who oppose us. To love people who are different from us. To love people less fortunate than us. Wouldn't it be great if Emmanuel Epsom, as we grew up, where this is there at the very center, humility because of the cross, humility because we understand God's mercy and grace, and that seen in loving people who are very difficult and very different from us. Loving even our enemies. And let's remember where the power to do that comes from as we gather around the table now. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we're going to see this again and again, that these words in the Sermon on the Mount are very easy to say. Sometimes we can even understand them to some degree. But the implications of your words are global, global to our lives, global to our priorities, global to the world that you've made. Help me, help each one of us to take to heed 
what you've called us to pay attention to in your word and to love other people with the same love that you've showered and showed to us on the cross. We cannot do this by ourselves. We cannot win your approval by loving those who insult us, by loving those who are less fortunate than us. But we thank you that this is a call given to those people who have already received your grace, who have already been changed, who've already been adopted, who can already call you Father. So Father, please, would you help me, would you help us to love people the way you've loved us? Amen. Thank <laughs> you.